is Russia a nation in decline, as we seem to be hearing so much? And just how handsome is that nice Mr Putin? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. There's a really strong, if not unchallenged, narrative in the West of Russia as a country in decline. And this matters because, as I'll go on to discuss, policy springs from perception. In many ways, one can really sort of blame Barack Obama, quite frankly. In 2014, when he made his infamous description of Russia just as a regional power, something that frankly annoyed the Russians and especially Putin no end, He also, more generally, made a whole series of allegations about it. This is his quote. I do think it's important to keep perspective. Russia doesn't make anything. Immigrants aren't rushing to Moscow in search of opportunity. The life expectancy of the Russian male is around 60 years old. The population is shrinking. Well, let's just stop and look at this for a moment. First of all, look, Russia does make things. Of course, The share of exports accounted by oil and gas is over 60% of the total. But nonetheless, there is more. There is iron and steel to grain and weapons. So this is not just simply the classic old expression, this is just a petrol station, a gas station, masquerading as a country. The suggestion that immigrants aren't heading to Moscow, well, between 2011 and 2017, thanks to migration, the Russian population actually increased overall. It then took a dip, but now there are all kinds of measures to allow in more people through both passporting them and also through providing different uh, forms of temporary labour accreditation. In the first quarter of 2020 alone, more than 160,000 passports were issued. Uh, As I said, so it's not just simply temporary labour rights. And a new dual citizenship law was beginning to be drafted to make it even easier for people to come in. And there's talk of up to 10 million new citizens coming in over the next decade. A lot of them, they're thinking of probably from southeastern Ukraine, the Donbass, but also from elsewhere in the former Soviet Union, especially Central Asia. As for life expectancy, well, whatever he may say, actually, even in 2014, male life expectancy at birth was 65, not 60. And up until COVID, obviously hard to tell the long-term impacts of that, but it continued to rise. Uh, By 2019, it was 68 for men, while women's expectancy was much higher. So the aggregate was 73, 73 years in 2019, which is a record for Russia. Now, sure, that's still lower than the West overall, but nonetheless, it's improving sharply. And broadly speaking, this business of the population shrinking, well, look, it's true that, I mean, although the fertility rate is increasing, particularly because of efforts by the state, uh, nonetheless, particularly because of the impact of late 80s through the 90s, then yes, there, there is a problem with demographics. Its mortality is still too high and so forth. But nonetheless, we have to realise that there's a limit to actually how far demographics really is destiny. 
Joseph Nye, who's one of the really big beasts in the international relations world, called Russia a declining state, specifically by virtue of its annual loss of about 750,000 people from the workforce in recent years. And as well as, it's worth saying, in its failure to, as he put it, adapt its economy to a modern technology economy as opposed to an energy-based economy. But OK, that's fine. But we have to ask, actually, how much does population really make a great power? But for all this, in a way, I can see why. This whole Russia is a declining power notion is an appealing tool for, ironically enough, both hawks and, if not doves, let's say turtles. Because for the turtles, who would rather basically ignore Russia and the challenge it offers and see if it goes away... This means that you can just simply rely on strategic patience, which is sometimes a valuable tool and at other times it's a valuable way of actually avoiding having to do anything but just simply say you're being strategically patient. Whereas for the hawks, well, it's even more dangerous because it actually it has less to lose and that's why we need to be doubly cautious of what that nasty Putin is doing. So in some ways the declinist narrative appeals to both sides. But let me just kind of raise some more general points about this whole approach. Well, first of all, decline is obviously a relative issue, and it's not just temporarily relative. In other words, compared with the past, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but it's also horizontally relative. Now, the thing is, you see, that compared to China in particular, we in the West are all declining. If you look, for example, at a chart of Russia's GDP gross domestic product, both in terms of what it is per capita anyway, and then also as a share of the global economy, you'll see that the GDP per capita has basically been continually rising of late and continues to do so. I mean, even sanctions and COVID, they're more likely to actually impact the rate of rise rather than causing any particular decline. But of course, Russia as a share of the global economy is shrinking because other countries are rising and growing at a much, much faster rate. However, the interesting thing is, if you look at a similar graph for both the United States and the the Eurozone, or indeed the European Union, by the old definition, in other words, not in in ways that factor out the loss of, of the UK, in many ways, it's quite similarish uh, kind of process. I mean, obviously, it's not quite at the same rate. It's, it's, a, it's more dramatic for Russia than, for example, the United States. But still, I mean, the United States basically has been declining ever since really the mid-50s. That was its, its uh, absolute high point in terms of the, the share of the GDP that it accounted for. And it's now down from 50 or, or over 50% to something like half that. As for the Eurozone, well, likewise, it has been growing, but its share of the the global GDP has been declining. So actually, we should realise that although Russia's economy is shrinking in, in these relative terms, it's not necessarily shrinking that much compared with the rest of us. And as regards populations, well, look, yeah, fine. I mean, if you look at, say, the United States' population, it is still growing, but the growth rate is definitely declining. And actually, if you look geographically, much of the United States, there, you know, basically the population is, is, is pretty static. Such growth as there is is focused in, in, in certain states in particular. And all of this might help explain why 
as we in the West are busy looking down on Russia as a declining power, you know, it's pretty clear that China looks at, well, Europe, but you know, in particular the United States, while not yet a regional power, but certainly one is in decline, and you don't have to just believe me. They keep saying so over and over and over again. But the question becomes, obviously, decline in what? What's your measure? What's your, your benchmark for that? Now, sure, the Russian economy is still way too heavily based on hydrocarbons, oil and gas, which is not a good bet in the long term. Certainly, also, the infrastructure still needs a lot of investment and TLC to truly unlock what potentiality there is within the country. And, although we've seen considerable steps forward in, in the, the Russian military, you know, it's not, in comparative terms, the Red Army of the peak. But should we really be comparing Russia of today with an often actually quite idealised Soviet Union? What about if we compare it with something more recent? How about the 1990s? I mean, compared with that, Russia is ascendant in economic terms, in terms of stability, in terms of geopolitical heft, in terms of military capabilities. I mean, on all those levels, frankly, in the 1990s, Russia was in a tremendously parlous state. And now Russia has an economy, as I say, which, which is growing, albeit slowly. It is certainly politically and economically stable with massive currency reserves and also continued residual legitimacy in the system. Whereas in the 1990s, frankly, Russia was, if it was considered at all, it was considered as a problem geopolitically. I don't know, you know are we worried about loose nukes or, or whatever else? But certainly no one was really paying too much attention to it. Now, that's clearly not the case. And to a large extent, that is precisely because of its military capabilities. Indeed, I mean, even if we're actually going to compare Russia with the USSR, what about the late USSR? I mean, in 1989, the nominal Soviet GDP per capita was something like $2,700. Now, if you allow for inflation, by 2015 terms, that would be about $5,600. What was actually the Russian GDP per capita at that time? 9,243. And by 20, sorry, 2019, it was 11,585. So actually, GDP doing much better. But then again, you know, maybe GDP isn't a particularly good, good measure. How about just in terms of people's quality of life? I just pulled out one you know, pretty much random statistic. 1986, on average in the Soviet Union, sorry, the, the Russian part of the Soviet Union, each home, flat in other words, apartment, was shared by on an average 3.2 people. And that flat had an average size of 56.8 square metres. So in other words, every individual had 17.75 square metres to themselves. Now, fewer people live together and they have on average 23 square metres each. So we're actually also beginning to see things like the size of, of domiciles as well as the quality improve. I mean, on one level, one might think that's trivial. But the point is, actually, by pretty much every index, it is clear that in objective terms, Russia is doing better than the late Soviet Union, too. There was a very interesting report by Simon Sarajan and Nabir Abdullayev, and I'll leave uh, a uh, hyperlink to it in the program notes. And it called Measuring National Power, Is Vladimir Putin's Russia in Decline? 
And particularly what it did is it took a whole variety of different indices that are used to measure national power, just to see what happened. And this is what their findings were. Contrary to claims of Russia's imminent demise, two of the three models used to measure the country's power vis-à-vis -vis the world as a whole indicate that it has grown in the 21st century, while a third showed a decline of less than 1%. That's not so bad, quite frankly. Sure, it is not a superpower today, or it's not labelled and regarded as such, but what is it actually that makes a superpower? I mean, arguably, for example, the most fundamental point, the fact that it has a nuclear arsenal which can blow up the world, is still unchanged, and indeed being modernised. There is no objective qualification for what makes a superpower. Really, a superpower is a country that the world, or a large enough proportion of world opinion, decides is a superpower. So, this is my kind of third point, is decline actually in the mind? And this can, one can be spun in a variety of different directions. First of all, calling Russia a declining power, that could be presented as what's described as discursive statecraft in a recent series from the new Council on Geostrategy think tank in London. And what it means, in other words, that actually using this kind of labelling could be considered an attempt by Russia's enemies, rivals or competitors to frame it in declinist terms so that it gets treated as such. So that, in other words, people think of it as a declining power and therefore don't treat it as seriously as they might. Now, OK, that could be it in part. More than that, in many ways, actually calling Russia a declining power strikes me as a self-soothing gambit, let's say, by Westerners to feel better about a country they don't really know how to handle at a time when they themselves are feeling insecure about their place in the world, their assumptions about the fact that they, they ought to be the hegemons. Very recently, I, I had uh, really quite, quite a fine quote drawn to my attention, thank you very much, Catherine, um, from retired general, ex-chairman of the Joint Chiefs and former US Secretary of State, Colin Powell, wherein he was essentially advocating withdrawal of US forces from Afghanistan. And he explicitly drew a parallel with what happened when the Soviets pulled out in 1989. He said, they got tired and they marched out and back home. How long did anybody remember that? Well, actually, just from my own memory at the time, it, it was a pretty seismic moment, both within the Soviet Union as well as in terms of the Soviet Union's perception from the outside world. But what struck me, and OK, look, one can't read too much into any one, one random quote, but still, what struck me was the way that General Powell almost just didn't seem to regard it as at all strange to be drawing a parallel with a Soviet Union that was within two years of oblivion and the contemporary United States. As I said, let's not push it too far, but nonetheless, I did think that was interesting. The thing about Russia is it's probably not really national decline, so much, uh, shall we say, leadership decay. Ironically enough, Russia's biggest booster, apparently, Vladimir Putin, is also, I would suggest, its biggest underseller. By his focus on traditional me measures, military strength, capacity to coerce others, questionable technical breakthroughs and ventures, 
He's not only holding Russia up against what I consider to be the wrong yardsticks, but he also seems to exude a, a fragility, a, an insecurity. Just as arguably the scale of US rhetoric about leadership reflects its own inner discomfort at the way that leadership is actually slipping through Uncle Sam's fingers, so too Putin, probably unconsciously, he never really strikes me as a, a man prone to particular self-awareness, radiates that similar overcompensatory geopolitical machismo. You, know, you have to ask sometimes, why is he trying so hard? Consider the desperation to hold on to Belarus and Ukraine. And of course, there are very strong defensive rationales within the military for depth, for keeping your potential enemies away from your borders. And we, we have to keep remembering all the time how much we may think the notion of some kind of incursion into Russia by, if not NATO as a whole, but forces which are in NATO and with the backing or blessing of Uncle Sam, we may think that's ridiculous, but actually that is something that is genuinely believed by enough within the Russian leadership that it actually does factor into its plan. So yes, th th there are good reasons for wanting to hold on to these countries, but it's much, much more than that. There is an emotional edge to this. I mean, let's face it, if it was just that, then much of the Ukraine crisis, basically everything except for the Crimea annexation, could frankly have been resolved or be resolved with the promise that the country's tilt toward the European Union will remain economic and maybe political. But on the other hand, if it made pledges, a formal commitment of neutrality, not joining NATO, you know, what is still called, I always think a bit unfairly to Helsinki, Finlandization. If it was just about making sure that NATO forces don't come up to your border, that could have been resolved, but no, it was clearly something much, much more visceral, more primal than that. It's about that sense that Russia cannot rely on her soft power of example. She cannot rely on trade and investment, but guns, just guns, and what is called coercive diplomacy, but let's be honest, is rather more coercive than diplomatic. Now, let's be honest, how unpatriotic is that? to think that basically you have nothing to offer but threats and blandishments. So the aggressive boosterism of the Yunarmia young army, the official histories which are embedded within the Rasia Maya Historia exhibitions that proliferate around the country, the desperate clinging to the realities as well as the myths of the Great Patriotic War. All the repeated references to Russia's military might. I mean, not least there was a TV chief, Dmitry Kisilyov's gloat that Russia is the only country in the world capable of turning the USA into radioactive dust. That was back in 2014. But we've then also seen recent discussions on where else but the TV talk show hosted by reliably toxic Vladimir Solovyov. You know, in which there was discussion there about the potential use of nuclear weapons in a conflict with Ukraine. Put all this together, and this is not about strength, this is not about confidence, this is about weakness and, again, a fear of decline. But it's a, a, a psychosis of the regime, of the Kremlin, rather than necessarily anything truly necessarily rooted in objective fact. Now look, as I have a pine, no doubt to my esteemed listeners ad nauseam, I think there are phenomenal potentialities for Russia in the future. 
both human capital and economic resource. There's a clear sense of what needs to be done in the legal system to liberate a much greater share of that. And frankly, even in current conditions, Russia's productivity has been growing faster than, well, Europe's. Now, you know, of course, actually realising all this potential is, is not so easy. And frankly, it'll be, I imagine, impossible under Putin and the system he symbolises and preserves. But, you know, I do think it will happen. After all, the story of empires is not always as straightforward as just simply rise and fall. If you can prevent yourself from being sacked by the Visigoths or conquered by Hernán Cortés, there's no reason why a nation may not have several different episodes in the sun, even if often in different form. I mean, let's face it, think of China. China actually tells us something about the capacity of states, of empires, if you want to call it in those terms, to reinvent themselves, to recreate themselves and return. Now, is all of this decline? Is it transition? Is it recovery? I mean, time will tell, obviously, but the easy decline is narrative. One which, ironically, the West, because of the convenience, and implicitly Putin in his overcompensation, actually are both espousing. Well, that's a deeply problematic one. And frankly, at least from the West point of view, and as an analytic tool, it's best ditched for now. Okay, that was, that was serious. Now, maybe after the break, something perhaps a little bit less so. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, a couple of weeks back, a poll by the superjob.ru job board reported that 18% of men and 17% of women surveyed had named President Vladimir Putin as Russia's most handsome man. Now, I mean, dear, oh dear, that was 1% down from last year. Oh dear, how mortality creeps up on us all. And it also turned out that 19% of men had actually named themselves Russia's most handsome man, while 18% of women had said, and this was a bit harsh, surely, there are no handsome men in Russia. Actors like Dmitry Nagiev, who came second, Danila Kozlovsky and Konstantin Kabensky, well, they only got 2-3% to 3% of respondents. Now look, this is just a piece of clickbait news, advertising, masking as content, and it means absolutely nothing. I honestly don't think that many women or men genuinely do find themselves turned on by a Botoxed 68-year-old, whatever his athletic prowess. But rather than make this just a ho, 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 these funny Russians story, I want to put this into a bigger context. This is word, panyatia, understandings, that is especially powerful in both the criminal world, but also nowadays the modern Russian world of business and politics. It means the unwritten constitution, the generally accepted notion of how things are meant to go, as well as specific deals that are agreed and sealed with a handshake rather than a notarised contract. There's also a wider sense of panyatia, of how everyone is meant to act, knows how they are meant to act. 
Now, part of this is precisely about the need periodically to perform loyalty. In some ways, this is a, a very bad habit learned in Soviet times and never really unlearned. That opinions, true opinions, I mean, they're, they're for the kitchen table. And they're for what, times when it really matters. When it doesn't, then you just say the right thing. Why take risks for no potential gain? Now look, any open poll will naturally favour the well-known, fragmenting the rest of the vote. You know, had it been a straightforward Nagiev versus Putin survey, I suspect the results would have been rather different. If people just simply are asked who, well, they'll go for who they can think of. But beyond that, I think people know that they are meant to nominate Putin. That there is this part of the performative patriotism of modern Russia is that, you know, if in doubt, you, you reserve your adulation on the Tsar. It means nothing. You know, it's just basically, here is the answer you wanted, now go away and leave me be. Consider the continuing high approval ratings for Putin, admittedly down to a mere 63% in the most recent Levada poll. I mean, on the one hand, ridiculously high compared with Western policymakers, but also interestingly high compared to his trust ratings. His trust ratings are about half that. Now, obviously, this raises uh, a seeming paradox that half of the pe people who seem to approve of Putin don't trust him. I mean, is it that they actually consider slippery mendacity a positive characteristic in a leader? Probably not. Because interestingly, look, the trust ratings tend to parallel quite closely to the poll ratings for the Kremlin's United Russia bloc, which seem to make sense, which means that in some ways it's the trust rating which gives us a, the best sense of the sort of what you might think of as the true approval rating of the regime. But why this 63%? Now, look, the usual way we explain this is that it's just by virtue of his longevity and his status as the, the pole star around which the constellations of Russian politics have rotated these past two decades, which mean that Putin has achieved this iconic status. He is both Putin the politician, for whom you actually have a rather less high uh, consideration for, and Putin the avatar of Russia. People approve of the latter as a gesture of patriotism, even if they have a very different opinion of the former. Now, I think that's certainly true, but I don't think it's necessarily the whole truth. People will continue to go and vote, and in many cases vote for United Russia. Not because they want to, not even because they have to. I mean, obviously there are some people who do find themselves in positions where they're more or less dragooned in conscripts and such like, but most people... I don't think that is really the driver. They do so because they think they ought to, and as they don't frankly believe that elections are going to decide anything, you know, with some justification, then they have no reason to stick their necks out and resist the pressures of expectation. The state, society, the panyatia say you go and vote and you vote for United Russia or whoever is the party of power at the moment. So you go and do that. I think it's much the same with picking Vladimir Vladimirovich as your eye candy of choice. So this is a pretty empty ritual and suggests the equally empty heart of much of the regime's supposedly legitimating practice. 
but it might also be more. Do you remember? I suppose I should have probably included some kind of health warning there, but you will have to allow me to have at least a little bit of fun at you, my esteemed listeners' expense. That was 2002's... 2002, good God, how time flies. Anyway, 2002's syrupy and clearly totally manufactured plastic girl band hit, A Man Like Putin. My boyfriend's in trouble again, got into a fight and got stoned on something... I'm sick of him, so I told him to get out of here, and now I want a man like Putin. A man like Putin full of strength. A man like Putin who doesn't drink. A man like Putin who wouldn't hurt me. Well, unless I became an opposition politician. A man like Putin who wouldn't run away from me. No, you're not going to be rid of Putin. It's tremendously easy to mock. All too easy, and actually quite satisfying too. It is just so extraordinarily, catchily ghastly. But, 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 the thing is that it was like so many of the other public statements of loyalty. It's something that can be subverted or even downright downright subversive. You can interpret the song at face value, and both Kremlin loyalists and Westerners, eager to prove that Russians are a bunch of brainwashed serfs marinated in in poshlost, that uh, very hard to translate Russian term for a kind of banal and flashy philistinism exemplified by the decor of the so-called Putin's palace. You know, for all for these people, actually, it is what it claimed to be. And look, there is an element of truth in that. I mean, clearly, that was the, the, the official intent of this whole thing. It was actually to try and suggest that, uh, you know, all, all the girls are lining up for Putin. But the song was also just so thoroughly, comprehensively over the top that it could also become an anthem of subversive mockery. To join the personality cult of the grey man is to pay obeisance to the panyatya, those informal rules of the game. But we shouldn't forget that this whole formulation of panyatya comes essentially from thieves' slang. Well, on the one hand, yes, you do need informal replacements for laws and contracts. But on the other, it's a world in which you are locked in constant competition. And face, in other words, reputation, respect, these are contested attributes. If someone can get away with mocking you, then they hurt you, they weaken you, they make you vulnerable. It's one of the reasons, actually, why many of the most potent, powerful and fearsome Pakani gang leaders actually cultivate a very, very informal style with their underlings, presenting themselves as if they're on the same level. What they're doing is they are conveying the ultimate confidence in their strength, their abilities, their status. The idea that they don't need to force people artificially to show deference, if you can pull it off, is a very, very powerful move. 
And it has to be said, it's something of a far cry from the honour guards and guilt chambers and so forth with which Putin is framed these days. If you need people to say how handsome you are, if they need to buy pictures of you for their offices, if you need to show them footage of you climbing mountains, then on the one hand, you are showing that you have power over them. Power, in other words, the capacity to force things upon people such that they have to perform these rituals of obedience. But the very fact that you need them to do so in the first place may also say something about your own insecurities and your own lack of true legitimacy. Those who live by Panyatya may, if not die, at least be undermined by them too. And all of that from a silly survey and a really silly snatch of syrupy ballad. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. Stop, stop, stop,